this morning, I'm going to do a little tiny bit of Tzav, which is the uh, Parsha for today, but actually I'm going to concentrate on um, the Haggadah because this is the last Torah class before Pesach. And I thought maybe we would at least make a few comments about the Haggadah and uh, the meaning of the Passover holiday, uh, especially this year when it is somewhat different, obviously, than it has been in past years. Uh, the first thing I want to say, though, about Tzav, <clears throat> which is our Parsha, is that it talks about the priest, Aaron in particular, and, and Aaron's vestments, that is, the clothes that Aaron wears. And this is actually an interesting social question right now, <clears throat> because most of us get dressed to go out into the world. And what we choose to wear if we're home all day is interesting because it tells us not about the image we want to project to the world, unless, like me, you find yourself online um, or you're FaceTiming with someone, but <clears throat> about what it says about how you perceive yourself. Um, I, uh, I have found that when I'm in the house and I actually get dressed, I have a different self-conception, even though it may be subtle. I feel differently about myself. I move about the house differently than when I'm just in sweatpants all day. And it reminds me uh, of stories that I've read of people who, even when they stay home all day, put on a jacket and tie, which may be a bit excessive, um, you generally won't find me in a tux lounging around the house. But I do think that there is something about uh, what the, what Saad teaches us about the representative nature of clothes, not only to the outside world, but also to your self-conception. And Aharon as the high priest had to wear something not only because the people had to see him as the Kohen Adol, as the high priest, but because he had to think of himself as the Kohen Gadol. Uh, so that's at least worth thinking about um, as you go about your day and you decide, assuming that you are staying home, and I hope uh, you are staying home except when you absolutely have to go out, uh, assuming that you are staying home, what it is that you will wear around the house. Uh, okay, so now let's go to the Haggadah. And... Here, I have several comments that I want to make that might be helpful at your Seder. Uh, I am also going to be teaching a class on Tuesday at two o'clock uh, about Pesach. So uh, they will in part interact, uh, in part some of the lessons will be different. Um, but this morning I want to focus, in fact, on the text of the Haggadah as opposed to the entire holiday of Pesach. And I want to remind you that if you were writing the Haggadah, or I won't make presumptions about you, I'll say if I was writing the Haggadah, what I would do most likely is take a passage from the book of Exodus, because that's the part of the Torah that tells us, as the name indicates, about Exodus. Um, and so since the Haggadah is focused on Yitziat Mitzrayim, on leaving Egypt, you would assume that that's what the passage would be 
that forms the nucleus of the Haggadah, but that is not so. In fact, for those of you who want to look at the original context, um, it is uh, in chapter 26 of Deuteronomy, of the book of Devarim, of Deuteronomy. It says, and this is the passage that we read in the Haggadah that forms the central part of the, of the, Haggadah, of the Haggadah and the Seder. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first fruits of every soil, uh, and you go to the priest, and this is what you say. And here we go. This is from the, this is the uh, Haggadah passage. My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a very great and populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and impressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to the Lord, our God, our fathers, and the Lord heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. The Lord freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by awesome power, by signs and quartets. Now, if you're following along in the Torah, you will notice that there is another sentence that is not included in the Haggadah, which is, he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore, I now bring the first fruits of the soil, which you, O Lord, our God, have given. The Haggadah is composed of a midrash on that passage. That is, it tells rabbinic interpretations about each section of that passage. But it leaves out the end, you have brought us to this place, which raises a couple of questions that I think are important for us to think about. The first is, why would you take a passage from Deuteronomy when people are in the land to illustrate the story of the Haggadah, which is about when people are trying to leave Egypt? And second, this actually raises the other question, which is, why is the Exodus, Yitziat Mitzrayim, the central event and coming into the land is not the central event of Jewish history. Um, even more than, than uh, Har Sinai, even more than standing at Sinai, even more than receiving the Torah, the Exodus forms in our liturgy and so on. There's a mitzvah um, once or twice to recite uh, the, it's the miracle of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the Exodus from Egypt. Um, in our uh, liturgy, uh, whether it's once or twice, by the way, is a controversy, remember, that is repeated in the Haggadah, when it says, I've reached the age of 70, and I have only now learned why you have to recite it not only during the day, but during the night. And if you don't remember that passage, look in the Haggadah. Um, but the, uh, the idea that the mitzvah would be about something that has already, um, the mitzvah would be about something that has not yet happened, that is the exodus from Egypt, which is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise, and not about the entrance to the land or the being in the land, is a curious thing. And I want to give you a couple of explanations, and then maybe talk about why it is relevant for us. One possibility is that um, for the rabbis who put together the text of the Haggadah, exile was a reality. And 
they didn't want to focus on everything being on the fulfillment of being in the land because after all, um, both after the first temple destruction and the second temple destruction, we lived in exile. And so they did not see this as the conclusion of history because history had not yet concluded for them because they were in exile. It was still a prelude to the conclusion of history. So they hinted at the possibility of the future by choosing a passage from when you would be in the land, but they didn't want to make that the focus because at the moment they weren't in the land, at least not with Jewish sovereignty. And if this is confusing to you, um, let me just back up for a second and explain that the passage in Deuteronomy, my father was a wandering Aramean, um, that is what you say when you bring the first fruits to the priest in the temple. In other words, when you've been in the land and you're secure in the land and you're paying taxes basically to the temple in the land. And the rabbis um, lived in the land under Jewish sovereignty for a fairly brief time. But even those rabbis who lived in the land after the destruction of the temple lived under Roman sovereignty. So it still was not... Um, a Jewish land under Jewish sovereignty. So the Passover Haggadah is a book to be read in exile and to remember the possibility of being in the land. But we leave out that last sentence, therefore you have brought us here and a land flowing with milk and honey, because for most of Jewish history, the Jews who read the Haggadah we're not in that land. That's why the Haggadah finishes with the Shana Haba'ah Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem. Well, you don't say that. I mean, in, in Jerusalem, which is an interesting point, um, what do you say, by the way, if you are in Jerusalem? You don't say next year here. You don't say, you know, next year in someone else's house so I don't have to cook, uh, which would be the logical thing to say. Instead, you say, the Shana next year in a rebuilt Jerusalem. And this is the key insight that allows us to understand what it is that we're grappling with here. Going into the land was not an event in the Bible on the scale of leaving Egypt. Leaving Egypt was miraculous and filled with, 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 plagues and and splitting seas and a, a huge cosmic event going into the land was not like that because the land was not the perfect promised place and so even today when you are in Jerusalem under Jewish sovereignty there's still something to be wished for that is the land in a way that would be better now I bring this up because I think it's really important for us to understand that Pesach is an exile holiday and a holiday of yearning for the land and for its place. And it has deeper resonance in a lot of ways this year, because this year we are in a place of yearning and desire for a better place <clears throat> and and this Pesach for us reflects the spirit of the holiday that is 
that is encoded in the very DNA of the Haggadah in a subtle way that isn't easy, that isn't automatically understood unless you really think about it, um, which lets us know that the Haggadah is a book of yearning, not of completion. And if you think about why it is that Yitziat Mitzrayim, that the exodus from Egypt is the central event and not entering the land. It's because the exodus from Egypt is the beginning of the redemptive process that is not concluded. And since it's not concluded, we can't really celebrate the conclusion. Instead, what we celebrate over and over and over again, since we mentioned the exodus from Egypt in our prayers and, and on Pesach and so on, is the beginning of the possibility that we can come to a redemptive world. And the, um, the Haggadah is the way that we understand that God gave us the first steps to get to that place that we have not yet reached. And even the name of the meal, Seder, order, is a reminder that these things have a sequence and an order and a time. And you don't get there in one leap. Um, you get there step by step by step. And that the journey which the Pesach um, commemorates, the beginning of the journey through the desert, uh, is the what we are still on. Because if you think about it, um, to celebrate the generation that left Egypt could be thought of as a strange choice. After all, they were all fated to die in the wilderness, with the exception of a couple of people who made it into the land because they were righteous. But the entire generation died in the wilderness. And they died in the wilderness because they didn't have the ability to go into the land as free people, as was seen by numerous rebellions along the way. I mean, the Dor Hamidbar, the generation of the wilderness, they gave God a lot of trouble. Remember, with the golden calf and with Korah and with right away with the meat and the quail and over and over and over again, always yelling at Moses, always complaining, saying we should go back to Egypt. I mean, this is not, these are not exemplars of faith or piety or Jewish tradition. And it's strange that we would think of them as people that we, that we should hold up in any sense. And yet they were the ones who took the first step. And the first step, you know, there's a Hebrew saying, kol hatchalot kashot, all beginnings are difficult. The first step is very hard. And because they took the first step, they deserve nonetheless to be remembered with this um, sense of, uh, of constant reminder um, why it is that we recall the exodus from Egypt and hold them up as the people who took the beginning of our journey and also remember the people who fulfilled the promise to Abraham. Because God says to Abraham early on, your people will go down to Egypt. Remember the Brit Ben Habitarim, the, the covenant between the pieces. Your people will go down to Egypt. They will be enslaved there, pressed there, and I will bring them up with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And that's what God does. Um, 
There is also, by the way, and, and I think that this has some relevance to us. Why does it say, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? So one interpretation of that is the mighty hand brought them out and the outstretched arm, you have to imagine an outstretched arm here, okay? You're holding it out like this. What does an outstretched arm do? It prevents you from going back because the Israelites wanted to go back. They were constantly like, we don't have to stay in, in, in the desert. Egypt was better. And in fact, uh, one rabbi, Shmuel Molivar, was a great uh, rabbi, I believe the middle 1800s or late 1800s, maybe early 1900s, I have to check the date. But nonetheless, I can tell you what he said, even though I can't tell you when he lived. Um, he said that the reason that the sea closed after the Israelites walked through it is so that they wouldn't go back to Egypt because had it stayed open, they would have walked back. Um, now, of course, that's a little bit tongue in cheek because it closed over the Egyptian army. But what these interpretations reflect is that there is a comfort even in one's slavery that is hard to escape. And I predict <laughs> with no great powers of prophecy that when this quarantine is over, for many people, it will be hard to go back out into the world. We think we're itching to get back out and do things, but for some of us, it's not going to be so easy. And we may get comfortable even in our quote unquote slavery um, because the human psyche adjusts to routine and confinement. And uh, I wonder if that will be a phenomenon. If it is, uh, you heard it um, on Pesach first. Another point I want to make is about the questions and the meaning of the questions and why the questions are asked. So one rabbi in the last uh, in the in the nineteen hundred in the nineteenth century said something very poignant and very powerful that also I think applies this year. He said, "Why do we ask Manish on Pesach? Why do you ask why is this night different from all other nights on Passover?" Because the truth is, other holidays are more different than Passover. He said, you should ask on Sukkot. Sukkot is really different. You go out into a booth and you sleep there. That's when you should ask, why is this night different? And his answer is that actually in Jewish history, it is rarer to sit around the table and have a festive meal with so much time and leisure. Because remember, Passover the Pesach meal is a meal of leisure than it is to have to sleep in a temporary hut and not know what, uh, in what way you'll be subject to the elements and uh, feel insecure and afraid. Sometimes though, Passover is both. Passover is both a time when you feel at ease, but also it brings back a lot of Jewish insecurities. Um, those of you who saw the morning moment, which you may not have seen because it just came out as the class was going on, I talk about how in Jewish history people were afraid to open the door because there was always, there were often pogroms and anti-Semitism at the time of Passover. The blood libel about Jews baking blood with matzah used to come around every Pesach uh, in Europe. And this year, for the first time in, in my memory anyway, we are afraid of opening the door because 
the, the pandemic is a threat to our homes in a different way, obviously, than an anti-Semitic attack. But the symbol of Elijah walking in and bringing redemption is very real to us this year. When we can open our doors again and feel secure and safe, we'll have that redemptive feeling. And <clears throat> that is, um, I want to end with Elijah, but I want to go to one more aspect of the uh, Haggadah before I get to that, which is <clears throat> about children. So you know, obviously, that, that all the songs are put at the end in order to try to keep the children up until the end of the, uh, of the Seder, um, and that the Seder is very child-focused. And part of the child-focusedness, if you will, of the Seder is the wicked son and the wise son both asking questions about all, how, about all these laws, all these hukim, all these, uh, all these statutes and ordinances and so on. And here it's based on a passage also in Deuteronomy, which is in chapter 6, verse 20, for those of you who want to follow along. And it reads, when in the time to come, your children ask you, what mean the decrees, laws, and rules that the Lord our God has enjoined upon you? You shall say to your children, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord freed us from Egypt with a mighty hand, and so on and so forth. Um, in other words, what the Torah is saying is not on the Passover night, your children will ask you this. It's saying sometime in the future, your kids are going to ask this question. And Reflect for a minute on this. Um, there are a lot of things that Jews do that kids could ask about. Why do we eat this way? Why do we observe the Shabbat this way? Um, why do you put on a black box on your head and on your arm this way? Uh, and so the idea that one day th your children are going to ask you this question is a very generalizable idea throughout the Jewish tradition. But it is focused on Passover for a couple of reasons. One is that Passover reminds us that it is all about the story. That's the mitzvah. The Rambam codifies that mitzvah. Maimonides codifies this mitzvah. It's mitzvah le saper yitziat mitraim, the to tell of the exodus from Egypt. It is the story that's the mitzvah. And the story is is a sort of, by, by gravitational pull of human psyche, stories move to children, right? Once upon a time, that's a story for a child. And so, and, uh, and um, Philip Pullman, the author of the Golden Compass series, once said very beautifully, uh, thou shalt not speaks to the head, once upon a time speaks to the heart. And Pesach speaks to the heart and speaks to the child in us. And so it says one day your children are going to ask you this question. Well, we're, this is the night that we tell the story. So this is the night that we evoke the question from our children, even if they don't ask it, which is the second part of this, that maybe your kids will sit around the Seder and they won't ask anything. Then you put the question quite literally in their mouths and you say, as the youngest person of the Seder, you must ask this question now. Because you need to ask the question so that we can tell you the answer. 
you need to ask the question so we can tell our story. And again, in this time, at this pandemic, the time will come when people will ask questions about what it was like and will tell the story because the story is going to be the story of our lives at this time um, with this uh, wild, um, I don't know, this wild epic in which we live, uh, in which we continue to live and the end of which we have not yet seen. And then finally, um, there is Elijah and the idea of redemption, which I talked about uh, in an earlier class on the Messiah. So I'm not going to repeat all the material that's in that class. If you're interested, um, you can see that uh, that was I gave that class yesterday. But the idea of the Messiah coming in on Passover is the notion that the end of the story will happen on the night that we tell the beginning of the story. It makes a perfect circle. This is the night when you began the journey out of Egypt, and this will be the night when the journey will finally be over and everything will be okay again. And we can feel with the anxieties of our time what that promise means and how powerful that promise is. Um, the time when God will wipe away all tears and bring joy. When, you know, the hearts of parents will be turned to children and children to parents. When the lions will lay down with the lamb, when things will be peaceful and good. And I think for most of us this year, that is a very palpable and powerful sense. And so, um, as I said, I will be speaking more about Pesach on Tuesday, but for those of you who I won't see, <laughs> um, metaphorically speaking, or who won't see me, I want to wish you a Chag Kasher B'Sameach. I hope you have a happy and healthy and uh, joyous Pesach. Thank you. Bye.